As kids, we played follow the leader, didn't we? You know, and if you didn't, like, if it's a great game. And the entire title kind of tells you the plot. Like, self-explanatory. <laughs> you follow the leader. And I have a question fundamentally about that. How many of you recognize that as an adult, we're still playing follow the leader a bit? When I was um, a young adult in high school, I recognized I was playing follow the leader. I was a shortstop in South Florida, and we were winning quite a bit. And what happens when that is the case is that people start comparing you to other shortstops in the area at your position. There's a kid across town who was actually better than me. And when we got to play them, I watched him on the field. And the way that he took the field, the way that he took infield alone was impressive. He moved on the field like he was skating on butter. He was just so smooth. And footwork is incredibly important to a middle infielder. And I watched him just glide around the infield. It was so impressive. So much so that I didn't realize it, but subconsciously, I started to mimic some of his moves. I started to mimic some of his game. I started to started to emulate some of what he was doing in practice and in games. And one day, my coach, who had coached him, by the way, he had coached him before he came to my high school, he had trained him and raised him, looked at me and said, Justin, what are you doing? I said, I'm playing baseball, you know, I'm playing shortstop. He said, no, 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 you keep trying to mimic him. Why are you doing that? And I was like, I, I don't know, I didn't even know I was doing that. I mean, he's pretty impressive, though. He goes... That kid is flat-footed. You ought to see him try to do a basketball shuffle. You know the thing? You remember the shuffle drill like this? He's like all over the place. He cannot do it because fundamentally to play shortstop, you have to be on your toes. And that's what you teach fundamentally. He goes, why would you mimic his obstacle? Why would you mimic his condition? Now, this kid was a, was a D1 shortstop. He had already signed a letter of intent to NC State. He was going to play because he had gotten a scholarship offer. And he had learned to rise above his obstacle, and so much so that it was impressive. But I had a God-given talent he didn't have, and I kept trying to mimic him. And Paul brings this to our attention as we turn the corner from chapter 3 to chapter 4. The reason I use that example is because Paul's trying to say the same thing to us. He says, you have to be mindful of who you mimic. You have to be mindful of who your mentors are. Because we're all learners and we are all simultaneously leaders. But you have to be able to recognize that there, there are people in your life who are impressive. Some of which who are still enslaved to sin and their selfish way of thinking and living. How many of you have lost people who are really gifted. I'm going to use some lost people who can speak really impressively, command the room, and they can be articulate. He goes, they're still lost. And just because they're impressive, we don't need to mimic their crippling condition eternally. Hello? When he be driven by something larger than that. And so he says, be mindful of who it is you're seeking to align yourself with there are good habits and bad habits that can be formed. And so today, we've entitled our, our, our series, or sorry, the sermon for today in this series is called Our View of Things. He's asking us to change our perspective, our view of things. And he's going to ask us to look at it in, in four different ways in a moment. He's going to ask us to change our view on our set goals. He's going to ask us to change our view on how we see spiritual leadership. 
He's going to ask us our view of their sin. And he's going to ask us our view of our citizenship. But I want to get right into it. So I'm going to ask you to stand up. I want to be at the end of verse 13 in chapter 3 of Philippians. We'll go to chapter 4, verse 1. Here it is. But one thing I do. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then, who are mature, should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. As I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the, the Lord in this way, dear friends. Heavenly Father, as we just look at your word, I pray that it would instruct us, open our minds and hearts to your spirit, and who, the, who it is who actually teaches and who inspired this text initially. Have your way with us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to go ahead and give us our first point. It comes out of verse 13. It's our view of our set goal. Our set goals. Here it is. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal. Listen, here's the thing. If your aim is behind you and not in front of you, then you're moving backwards. That's pretty self-explanatory. That's just math. Okay? But how many of you know someone who has a tendency to glory in what's behind? Always talking about the glory days. Good or bad. Sinful or self-righteous, they're looking backwards. He's going to speak to this in a moment about specific people in the church. He's going to speak to that. Before he does, I, I just want to say, there's, he's trying to warn us about that tendency. In his book, uh, Kazone, Craig Rochelle says this. He says, many of us need to, who want to live with vision need to look at the end in mind. They need to start there. So what he says, the entire theme of the book came out of one fundamental question. What are they going to write on your tombstone? That's a question we all need to ask ourselves. Because you have, less, you have less numerics and less numbers there than you do in Twitter. Like, if they have five words they can put on your tombstone, what are they going to say? And a few months ago, I gave an illustration. It may have been just a month or two ago, I gave an illustration with a rope that ran out this door all the way out in the parking lot. We said, let's imagine it runs all around the world. And I held up to you the handle, just a taped section. And I said, Paul's asking us to think about the world the way that Jesus does. Our life, he sees as the endless rope. We have a tendency to focus solely on what is ending, what is temporal. And what 
to understand what Craig is getting at in, in directing vision for our life, he says you should start with the desire to, to be able to leave a legacy, leave something to the, those who are coming behind you. Leave something on your tombstone that you'd be proud of that other people can follow after. But recognize the tombstone isn't the end. It's the gateway. It's just the beginning. And so it is the beginning to the rest of the rope. It's the end here to this temporal life, but it's what's starting everything else. And what he's saying is you should be someone who gets horrified who, who actually gets convicted by the thought that maybe a hundred years from now, people who wear your last name won't be worshiping Jesus. Maybe you should have a desire to pass something on to your kids or the generation coming behind you that's worth passing on. See, they didn't need to be taught how to be selfish. They already got that. He's saying, can you pass on Jesus the selfless? Can you do that? What would they write in the five words that will fit on your tombstone? What legacy will you leave? What would they say of you? And do we recognize that if we live with that quote-unquote end in mind, we recognize that's really just the beginning. This is just practice for what is to come. So we have to live with a set goal in mind. The question is, are we allowing certain things to hold us back spiritually? And if we are, what are those things? Do we, in fact, have a temporal view when we need to have an eternal view? Do we look at, how many people in here don't even look at the tombstone? They can barely get away from what's directly in front of them. So caught up in the weeds, I got a million things hit me right now, just feel like this. I can't see the tombstone. I'm not driven with vision like that. I'm not trying to get there. Though I would never start a business without a mission statement. Though I would never do anything as important as get married without a mission statement, I can't get out of my own way. All I see is what is directly in front of me. Anyone else know that life? Know what you're talking about? Know what, where I'm at here? Maybe just, maybe just me? Sometimes we just get stuck right here. We forget about who we actually are and what he's called us to be and what he's called us to do. And we look with the end in mind as if the gateway is that tombstone. And the words on her, just the dust as we walk into eternity, here's what he was about. I hope, I hope that my tombstone will say something in reference to the Savior. I hope it'll say something like he lived for others. That would be Jesus-like, amen? I hope it would say something as simple as, like Jesus, others were more important. Would he say that of you? Let me ask you. Does it matter what you say right here? Let me be clear. How many of you know that, like, we, we can lie really, really good? And it doesn't matter what you say right here. It doesn't matter where you attend on Sunday. Your conduct shows what you believe. How many of your classmates, how many of your coworkers, how many of the people in your house would say they clearly lived this? So that's why we put it on their tombstone. Second, we got to have a set view of our spiritual leadership before us. Hey, here's the thing. You're mimicking someone whether you recognize that or not. I was mimicking someone, and I was actually mimicking their obstacle. I was mimicking the thing that should have crippled them, and I didn't even recognize it. I was subconscious in it. 1 Corinthians, uh, I'm, I'm going to read it here and then jump over there in a moment. It says this. 
In verse 17, Paul says, Join together in following my examples, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. He's not being arrogant. He's not being pompous here. What he's saying is, join me in this. In 1 Corinthians, he says it like this. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Join me in said imitation. Let's do this together. Let's follow after him. I'm not your standard. You're not mine. He's our standard that we're seeking to live up to, so let's do that together. Hebrews 13, 7 says, Remember those who first taught you the word of God or the ways of Jesus and imitate their faith. It's important. This is important. Here's the reality. Too often we have a tendency to miss what God desired for us in this. How many of you were fortunate enough to have a mentor intentionally? You understand this and know it. Hands up. Okay? A few of us, that's great. The rest of us just trying to figure it out. I get it. Well, here it is. A fundamental principle in apprenticeship is that you are learning a skill from someone who is skilled. That's it. You're just learning to mimic a skill from someone who has already mastered it. I want to say this very clearly. Disciple is a noun. We have a tendency to say, who are we discipling? Or discipleship. Those are not verbs. Disciple is a noun. Making is a verb. Making disciples, like our mission statement says, is apprenticeship. And apprenticeship at its core is how we incarnate a new way of doing things or a new way of life. In Jesus, it's more than learning or simply mimicking a new skill. It involves immersion at the core of our being, at the point of indoctrination, emulation, which is what Paul's talking about when he mentions a disciple of Jesus. I used an illustration a few weeks ago of a soldier. I'm going to use it again. Again, how many of you have ever seen a civilian go off to the military? And when they come back, they look fundamentally different. It's not just because they cut their hair. It's not just because they put on a uniform. Something about them looks familiar, but they themselves are fundamentally different. They see the world differently now. They were civilian. They've come back as soldier. Not a perfect soldier. That's not required. We wouldn't have Jesus if perfection was required. But they're just fundamentally different. They were one thing. Now they're something altogether different. It's not perfect. They just are. Let me ask you. When people look at your life, your friends, your family, do they go, they just fundamentally are. Something so different than what they once were. They were this. Jesus, fundamentally different. They didn't just put on a uniform. They didn't just cut their hair a certain way. They didn't just start doing things and not doing things. They see the world completely different now. And they have fundamentally changed at who they are. 2 Corinthians 5.21. I'm going to ask this verse to come up. It's really important. Here it is. I'm going to do a little English lesson here. I've underlined two words intentionally. For our sake, he made him to be sin. Let me ask you a question. How many of you struggle with thinking that sin is something you do, not be? What this says is sin, Jesus became sin. It became, he embodied the persona thereof. And it, 
he would only need to do that if we, in fact, were sin. Like, it was who we are. Like, being. So, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we could become the righteous, righteousness of God. Like, a title. Like, we could become the righteousness of God. And that's not something that we have done. That's something we accept. It's a gift. It was evident on the cross. We could never do it. That's what I love about the story of the prodigal son. When the prodigal son gets his inheritance, tells his dad, I'd rather you be dead, and he runs off and squanders it all. And he comes back humbly knowing he can no longer be called a son. But he's only worthy to be called, you know, a servant. His father comes running out to him before he can even break the plane of the property, falls on his neck, and here's what he does. This is beautiful. It's awesome. Takes his robe off himself and wraps the boy in the cloak. Do you know what that is? It's a picture of how the Father sees us when he looks at us once we've accepted the gift of Jesus. It's how we become the righteousness of God because when he looks at us, he looks through his son. He mostly just sees Jesus. We are covered in him and what he has done. Hello? But see, we have to accept that in order to transform. Like, we need to change. We have to have a view of leadership that says we have an old way and we got to get to a new way. I know that change can be scary for most of us, but John the Baptist, who Matthew 11 says there was not another person on the planet that has come before or will come after like John the Baptist. Post your child for the kingdom. Jesus, John the Baptist says of Jesus, I got to become less. I got to become more like him. John the Baptist said, less of me, more of him. Romans 7, Paul said it like this. The things that I want to do, I just can't seem to do. The things I know I shouldn't, I can't stop myself. Anyone relate? We have to fundamentally change. Why? We are selfish. We are self-seeking. We are self-worshippers. That's what happened in the garden. You can eat of any of these billion trees of fruit. There's no poison or death in the world. Eat of all of it. Have a good time. Enjoy. In fact, you've got a job to do. Name the animals. Till this ground. Have fun. Just stay away from the one thing that is harmful for you. And what could we not do? Just stay away from the one thing that will bring death. If you can just honor me with your presence and not try to take my job from me, we're going to get along great. And we couldn't do it. That's what needs to fundamentally change in us. This is the sin that is forgiven at the cross. We keep trying to be God. We keep fighting him for his job. And we... He did not deserve to pay the penalty that he did, but he did so willingly out of love for you and me so that we could become something that we could never on our own. And there are people in your life, praise God, who understand this. Paul's saying, I achieved everything that is possible in human terms, and I'm telling you, it's empty. I had a view that didn't go further than the handle. And I'm telling you, I achieved everything possible. Fame, fortune, riches. I had it all. I had the status. I had it all and I found emptiness. Nothing in it. So here's what I ask you to do. 
Stop putting your eyes on yourself and like me, join me in becoming like him who put his eyes on everyone else. First Peter, esteem others' needs as better than your own. Much like Exodus 2 when Moses stepped out and he walked amongst the people. Exodus 2.11 says that he went out and he saw the burden of his brothers and he had to do something. He rose up and he struck an Egyptian dead. He could not let them be enslaved like that. He wasn't thinking about himself to do that. How many of listen, how many of you, this is an internal question, I do not want hands, I just want you to ask, how many of you think more about the people around you than you do yourself? How many of us, like me, I'll confess, just a little self-absorbed? Here's the problem with that. I don't want self-absorbed written on my tombstone. Hello? And I don't want the people following me or in a hundred years from now, the people who wear my name because I was self-absorbed to no longer worship Jesus, the one who could free them, the one who became so they could become. I want them in a hundred years from now worshiping Jesus because I lived for Jesus and thought more about them than I did myself. Amen? This is the call of every single person that has called upon the name of Jesus. So let me ask you a fundamental question. Who are you following to propel you forward? Who are you following that doesn't lead you to look backwards all the time and have those glory conversations about the glory days where you had conquests of people or drugs or alcohol, whatever it was, around the water cooler? Who is it that is propelling you forward and thinking more about others than looking at yourself? Who is it that propels you forward in such a way that you think of others instead of glorying in your own self-righteousness? Well, I have just been in church my entire life. And I'm faithful. I never miss. I have memorized the Bible word for word. All of it. Well, good for you. Does that excuse you from being a jerk? Does that excuse you and earn you something in heaven when he who knew no sin became so that you could become? It does not say in here, memorize the Bible word for word. It does not say in here, attend so many times, there is no, there's no chapel credit. Hello? He says we have to have the proper view of their sin and what it was that was actually ensnaring them. We cannot mimic their condition, their struggle, their obstacle. Because here's the thing. This the people that Paul's referring to here, many commentators argue on this, but his heart is broken over it. Read it. It says, I've told you often, verse 18, and now tell you again, even with tears, even weeping, that there are many who live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God, listen, is their stomach. Their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things alone. They're only on the temporal, not the eternal. What is their condition? 
What is their struggle? He's just pointed it out to us. They can't get past themselves. They could say right then and there, during that point, right here in this world, they can say whatever they want. They can do whatever they want. I believe, like many that, that, uh, that commentate on this very passage, the reason Paul's weeping is because these are personal friends. These are guys who were like him, ascribed a beyond those who were around him in Judaism, maybe became rabbis themselves, but at some point stepped across the line of faith, trusted Jesus, and then went back to Judaizing. People that he could run with, friends, were heartbroken because in the end, right here, before we step into eternity, every knee will bow, every tongue confess, Jesus is Lord. Just like Wade just said. Everyone. And so they have a freedom to sound impressive and they can say and go wherever they'd like and people will give them honor and respect and they're going to religiously have a platform. But they will suffer in the end and I am dying over that. Because here's the thing, they're leading others to that same shame. Hello? There are people who look at them and they're so impressed and they mimic their condition, their crippling eternal condition of sin. They mimic their self-righteousness and their flowery talk and their public prayers and they mimic that and they're missing out on freedom. They have no ability to become free because they are trusting in themselves. They can't save themselves. They still needed a savior. But they're trusting in that self-righteousness and it's breaking my heart. And even if the other commentators are true and it's not his friend, here's the thing. This only shows how much Saul of Tarsus has become Paul and he's no longer who he once was. He is weeping over people in his life who are going to step into eternity and be separate from God forever, even if they weren't close friends. Let me ask you, who in their lost state, enslaved to that, and eventually to suffer, causes you to weep? What friends what family, what classmates, what co-workers, because they are going to step into eternity when the Lord comes or he calls them home. And that's when the gates are opened. That's the gateway, the tombstone. That's where it all begins. How many of us are brokenhearted because many people that we rub elbows with, maybe even we have dinner with at the holidays, will not be there with us? Because we were too selfish to become. Because we, in our old state, still live selfishly, mostly looking at myself, mostly concerned about my agendas, not concerned about them, not so much that it drove me to weeping that I would love them like he would. Bear fruit of love that comes from someplace else. It's not selfish. It is not uh, rude. It's not, it's not jealous. It's not envious but it's patient, it's kind, it's loving. Paul's brokenhearted over the spiritual state of these men because he says in three ways, they offend God and they live for themselves. He says their God is their stomach. They have an insatiable desire for more. Matthew 6 said this, no one can serve two masters. You can either serve God or stuff. 
And these guys have chosen stuff. They've chosen the money. They've chosen the, the fame. They've chosen the status. And that's what they'll suffer for. And right now, they have a freedom to reign, and they're going to be gloried right now. But in the end, they will suffer. And how many of you can do the math? Eternity is a lot longer than this. And that drove him to weep. It breaks his heart. How many of us, uh, this is a really hard question, but how many of us are so selfish? We're not broken over that. We're not broken over that and the people that God has entrusted to us and entrusted to our care, and we keep watch over. He says that they can't help it. They look across the street of the Joneses, and they just got to have more. They have an insatiable desire, an unquenchable thirst for more stuff. They, they just they got to have it, and it's not content. It's no peace. It's who Paul was. Hello? It's who Saul of Tarsus was. Achieving the next thing, achieving the next status, getting to the next level, hoping I'd finally have contentment. This is why he says it's empty. Because I've went as high as you can go, and I didn't find anything. But in one moment in Acts 9, as I was traveling to Damascus, God was confronted by Jesus, and everything changed. The self-worship of someone who has an insatiable desire is never going to be contented till Jesus. He says their shame is their glory. How many of you have ever had that, that guy or gal? Um, you don't need to point them out in this room, okay? Who is uh, just kind of glories and revels in their own self-righteousness and their achievements and their religious accomplishments. Let me ask you a step further. How many of you have more conversations with people who aren't in this room? Maybe around the water cooler, and all they do is talk about the conquest they had in high school. And all they did is partiers. You know what I'm saying? All the stuff that they were able to do while they were here on the planet, enslaved to that mindset that that actually is impressive. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Let me take a step further. How many of you have ever gloried in looking backwards. Let me impress you guys. Here's who I used to be. You know what's impressive to me? Because unfortunately, let me be very clear, looking back, I have that story. And it's not impressive. You know what impressed me? You know what led me to Jesus? Was the kid who gave his life to Christ at four and always lived for him. I was surrounded by a team of people who were looking backwards, talking about their conquests and who, who they had been with and what they had done and celebrated like it was some badge of honor. I came to Christ because someone thought more about me than they did themselves. He, because he recognized Jesus thought more of him. If we are only aspiring in present yet fallen and failing world, when we're supposed to, as the followers of Jesus, the family of God, be building towards the very kingdom that Jesus is building, this new world, this new life, then we need to repent. If we are a people who are constantly looking back and not looking ahead, not more concerned about what the tombstone says and who that might be following our lead and who we ourselves may be following. 
You may be mimicking people who have conditions that you need to step away from and find people who have good habits. Because it matters in eternity. If we have a tendency to only get caught up in that which is directly in front of us, and I'm going to be honest, I struggle with this sometimes. Get caught in the weeds a little bit. Don't back up and see the forest. Get caught in just the drama of what's directly in front of me. It's really difficult to live contented there, right? Because circumstances are constantly changing, and you practice a little bit of less hope when we're here. Let me be clear. How many of you um, know that, uh, well, I said it earlier, but uh, so you'll get an A if you just say this. <laughs> How many of you know you can lie? How many of you have kids? <laughs> They'll teach you. Now, I love it. I love that kids are like brutally honest at times, right? How many of you love that? Like just brutally honest, no filter, just boom, here it is. To your own demise sometimes, maybe your own humiliation. But how many of you also know that it's in there? Like that sin thing you struggle with, it's in them too? You didn't have to teach them to be selfish, right? You know what I'm talking about? So like when it's happened in my house, my kids go, I want to have a sleepover. Come to dad. Dad, I don't want to have a sleepover. Ah, it's not a good time. Not a good night. I don't, I don't think it's going to work tonight. Not okay. What do they do? Boom. There's another way. They immediately go find mom and go, mother dearest, with all your glory. I have already discussed this with dad and he's okay. I walk in. Don't believe a word they said. They're lying through their teeth. That is not, not what they believe. That's not true. Here's the thing. How many people look at your life and mine, and they don't care what you say. They know the way you conduct yourself is what you believe. They don't care where you show up. They know the way you conduct yourself in and out, day in and day out is what you fundamentally believe. And Paul's saying these people may have everyone else fooled, but their end is destruction because they have a temporal mindset and they're living for only right here and not eternal. And he asks us to fundamentally change. The only way we can change is to repent. It drives him to weeping. It should drive us to weeping because he says in the end, we have a view that is different. We have a view of our citizenship and he's talking to a church that would understand this. Remember, we said a while ago at the beginning of the series that he's talking to a church that acts Roman. They're under Roman rule and Roman law. They want to be Roman. They're like a little Rome in the middle of a Greek province. They don't eat like people who are just outside their borders. They eat differently. They dress differently. They're under a different law system. So they can understand being a citizen of a place that, know, that looks different and has a different set view than everything else around you. He's saying you're a citizen of heaven. Verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there. Not here. Not from Greek. Not from Nashville. From there. The Lord Jesus, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, speaking to his sovereign nature. Everything will transform our lowly bodies that have obstacles and conditions into a new heavenly body, glorious like his. Amen? I buried my grandmother last month. 
and people asked how I was doing. Emotionally, it's really hard. Can I say that? Grateful for your prayers. But physically, I could not celebrate more because she no longer is crippled by this thing that's ailing her. She's there with the Lord in a new body. Amen? She's with him in his presence at peace. That's our aim, folks. So he says in verse 4, stand firm in this. Stand firm in this. Be more focused on your gateway, your tombstone. Be more focused on what you put on that. Be more focused on the people who are coming behind you who wear your name. Be more focused on who will propel your eyes forward and keep you focused on that versus looking back and glorying in what is dying. Focus up and be intentional. He says, our citizenship isn't here. We're going there. But we have an opportunity and we have a role and responsibility to be everything he's asked us to be while we are here. And to stop guilting ourselves like the enemy tries to for stuff that we do. It's not about what we're doing, it's being. And here's, I want to bring up a verse that I think is really important as we come to a close here. Isaiah 30 says this. Paul said it earlier in this text that we, we are to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. That's what this verse is saying. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and in trust is your strength. Can I say something we sang in a moment ago? I want to say it simpler. As Wade was singing, that's all I could think about. We never outgrow the cross. We never outgrow the cross. We never outgrow the need to come daily and repent of our own selfish ways and our own selfish tendencies because they stand in the way of us actually living this and it keeps us in this little weed-driven, drama-driven world that's temporal, dying, and falling away. It keeps us from contentment and peace. But when we will just repent of this every day, come to, like we're about to practice it. We're coming to the end of the close. We get to respond to this word. We get to repent of our own ways. We're going to respond in one of three ways. We're going to bring that verse back up in a moment because that's where we find peace. That's where we find rest. But here, I don't get to do life group with all of you. So let's practice right now, okay? Ask you an internal question that we all have to respond to. Here it is. What are you allowing to hold you back spiritually? What are you allowing to keep you from running? What's keeping you restrained? What keeps you looking backwards? What is it that you're glorying in? I'm going to give you a couple options. How many of you struggle with bitterness? Maybe a lack of forgiveness. Maybe the thing holding you back is, in fact, a jealousy. And envy. I mean, I don't have everything, but man, the Joneses, why they get a boat? They don't even care about Jesus. I should get a boat. Temporal. Maybe it's just your overall lack of gratitude for the cross. Repent. Second, who are you following to propel you forward? And simultaneously, who are you mimicking? It's the other side of this coin. Who might you be subconsciously mimicking that has a condition like flat-footed? It's their struggle they're trying to overcome. And they may be able to impress you, but they still have this condition. They're enslaved. They are crippled eternally. And you keep mimicking that. Paul says, 
hey, look at me. Look at my example. Be selfless. Become the one who is willing to be the under rower, the busboy. Be someone who cares more about everyone else and elevating them around me versus me. Who is propelling your eyes forward to keep your eyes on others versus yourself? And lastly, and this is a big one, more than what you say and more than where you attend on Sunday, do the people in your life, do others know that you're a citizen of heaven? because of your daily conduct. In your hallways, at work, or in your home, that person loves Jesus. And if they can put anything on that person's tombstone, it would be that. They loved Jesus and they loved others and that's who they were. As they stepped in to eternity through the gateway of that tombstone and spent the rest of eternity with him, like my grandmother, that's who they were. In repentance and in rest is our salvation. This morning we need to repent. Father, we love you and we thank you so much for loving us. And in whatever facet you're calling us to, I pray that you'd find a people obedient to repent and hear the truth and trust the truth and lay down our lives and our agendas for yours and yours alone. I pray that we would be a people more concerned with looking like you and loving like you by turning our eyes to others versus what we already know to do in our sinful nature and what we already see the world doing and turning our eyes on ourselves. God, I pray that we, we would please you right now with a heart of repentance and a heart of obedience. I pray in Jesus' name your church would look like your church. Amen.